1999, a fan wrote a letter to Rolling Stone magazine. He was advocating for one of his favorite bands. He wrote, One of the most important female bands in American rock has been buried without a trace. And that is Fanny. They were one of the finest fucking rock bands of their time in about 1973. They're extraordinary. They wrote everything. They played like motherfuckers. They were just colossal and wonderful, and nobody's ever mentioned them. They're as important as anybody else who's ever been, ever. It just wasn't their time. Revivify Fanny, and I will feel that my work is done. That fan? David Bowie. The David Bowie. I'm Jessica Hopper. I'm from KCRW. This is Lost Notes. And this episode, it's all about Fanny. I think the first time I remember hearing, I didn't hear about Fanny. I read about Fanny. And they were just in a list of all female bands or female fronted bands. That was just a list in Bikini Kill number two. The YouTube algorithm brought them to me. I was just looking for stuff to DJ at my DJ night. And they came up and it was a cover with a baby doll, like an LP cover with a baby doll, and it had sparkly star sunglasses on it and bright pink lipstick. And I identified with that image, so I clicked play. This is Dylan Tupper Rupert. She's a writer based in Los Angeles. When I finally heard Fanny, I was really struck by how timeless they were. I thought they would sound like some relic of the 70s, but... So much of what they're doing sounds like it could be happening now. They were great. The first female rock band basically ever was started by two teenage sisters who were immigrants from the Philippines. They were queer. They're women of color. Like, that's something that I would feel like would be a big deal today, would be a big discovery. Where do we normally locate the birth of women in rock, do you think? The Runaways. Which is a few years after. Yeah, mid-70s. But we know that before The Runaways, before Joan Jett and Sherry Curry and... Lita Ford and um, and even some of these, you know, Susie Quattro and some of these other icons of women in rock. A few years before them, there was Fanny. In a lot of ways, Fanny was the first. Nineteen sixty four and nineteen sixty five, the Millington sisters, they're in high school. And by nineteen sixty eight they've graduated, they head to LA, they get a recording contract with Reprise. And Reprise in nineteen sixty eight was where you wanted to be if you were young artists really at the vanguard of what you're doing. You know, that's the home of Neil Young, it's Joni Mitchell, the Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix were all signed to the label. And Reprise Records has come up with something that they can get behind. 
family. What happens for them next? They, over the next few years, record five studio albums, and they're playing huge shows. They're getting local fans. They're very much a part of this L.A. 70s rock scene milieu. And by 1975, they're broken up. And what happens for them? They essentially just fade into obscurity. This is a band that was at the absolute vanguard in so many ways. Fanny were the first all-female rock band signed to a major label. They wrote and recorded their songs at a time when few women did, or rather, were allowed to. They were teenagers. They'd immigrated to America only a decade earlier. They were young women of color leading a successful band. They were doing something very few women did in 1968 or 71 or 1973. And in the world they were in, in rock and roll, Fanny were the first and often the only of what they were. All this made the band's perspective and identity unique. But some people thought it just made the band a novelty. Back then, intersectionality wasn't really something many people talked about around popular music. Certainly not the way we do now. And also, it's not exactly how the sisters in the band think about it. In their minds, they were girls living a rock and roll fairy tale. And like many fairy tales, this one starts in a castle on top of a hill. This is the true story of Fanny, from Dylan Tupper Rupert. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. To get to Fanny Hill, you peel off Sunset Boulevard at Marmont Lane. After a couple of winding blocks of sloping mansions, it dead ends. Here we go, baby. Is this right? Yeah. It's around the corner. Fuck yeah! Fuck yeah, I can imagine being 19 and living here. I'd have the time of my life. This is, like, what you fucking think of. Like, when you think of Hollywood... The late 60s Sunset Strip fantasy. We had a commune and cook together and play together. This is Jean, the younger sister, who sang and played bass. And they had people coming by all hours of the day and night and just hanging. You know, and the thing is, our house was not dingy. The first thing that we did when we moved into that house, we cleaned it. That's the way girls own something. And that's June, the older sister and guitarist. And so when people came over, not only did they get a chance to jam with us, it was well appointed. And they, there was probably somebody cooking. So it was like everything you wanted from a bunch of girls, including a PA. <laughs> Fanny Hill was a magnet for a particular faction of the Hollywood rock scene. Bonnie Raitt stayed with them when she first landed in L.A., the rock band Little Feet were close friends, and there's so many stories about them waking up, 
hearing music in the living room and finding a musician in their house. I just gotten up and I'm wandering through the house and it was um, not the guy in Derek and the Dominoes. It starts with a D though, Dave Mason. Yeah. Dave Mason. He was just hanging out downstairs riffing and he'd come over before and he just knew it was a safe place to go. Just drop in if the girls weren't there. He'd just sit in our space and practice. Before they got to Hollywood, the two Millington sisters had already lived a few lives. June and Jean were born in Manila, Philippines in the late 40s. They went to the American school and enjoyed upper-class comforts with five other siblings. There were maids, swimming pools, piano lessons. Their dad was a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy, and their mom was a Filipina socialite. But in 1961, their family left on a military passenger ship for Northern California. I think the officers heard us just singing and practicing, and they had us uh, sing at dinner for the people who were about to sit down and eat, and, and we were a hit. So I think from that point on, we realized, well, that's our point of entry into society, and it felt great. The Millington family settled into new lives in Sacramento. Suddenly, they were lower middle class cleaning houses before school, struggling to fit in. And also, Northern California was really cold. You know, I mean, we had no friends. We were so isolated in uh, the junior high we entered to, we didn't even meet any other immigrants that I know of. So I did not have a context. See, again, that's part of my innocence, the innocence orb that I grew up in. Nobody sat down and talked to me about racism and said... Now, June, you know, whatever, whatever you can say to a child to help them understand the ways of the world and how painful it can be. June felt alone, just barely a teenager, a new immigrant in America. But when I heard the guitar for the first time, just before I turned 13 in Manila, I knew the answer to that. I had found something that took me in. And, uh, you know, I think for a girl that's really important and for a girl who felt as marginalized, and I knew I was, I didn't just feel it, I knew I was marginalized, that was critical. And my sister Jean shared that experience. I'll never be the same. So June and Jean began to play school talent shows in the early and mid-60s, renditions of popular songs. Immediately, in their Sacramento Junior High universe, they started to get noticed for the first time. So now, I mean, Gene and I, people would stop us in the hall or stop me in the hall, you know, whether we were together or not, and say, I like your song, and they just keep walking. And that was a revelation for me. That was, uh, I, I mean, I was dumbstruck, and I was thrilled that people would not only recognize me from on stage, but talk to me at all. And so I was hooked. Um, at some point, a girl from another high school called us up at home and said, hey, I play drums, do you want to start a band? And I, I said to Jean, who happened to be in the kitchen when I picked up the phone, do you want to start a band? And she shrugged and said, yeah. So I said, yeah. And that's how the whole band thing started. That would have been late 64. Did it ever come up through other bands you were playing with or at your school that there would be, like, a boy that could join the band? Or was it always, 
Well, you're asking a question that's out of time and out of context, because no boy would want to play in a band with girls. So we developed our own confidence in this sort of young girl's cocoon, which is the best, you know, and no one was telling us, well, you can't do this. That first band eventually became the Svelts. June, Jean, and a rotating roster of local girls. They toured bowling alleys, school dances, vet halls, and teen centers all along the West Coast, all through high school. June graduated a semester early so she could tour full-time. I miss those curtains that open, you know, and close the velvet curtains that open and close. I just love that. Anyway, at this teen center, we played our little set. Then the curtains closed, and we moved our uh, equipment back quickly. And um, the next band started to play, and I'm like, wait a minute, these guys are... There's something going on here. Well, it was Creedence Clearwater, and nobody knew who they were. They were just a band that came on after us at at, uh, the teen center in Santa Clara. Um, I I don't remember ever hanging out with that band, but it sort of doesn't matter because they really showed me something about how it's put together. But I see, the thing is, I was always waiting to notice those moments because a girl couldn't go get a teacher. (laughs) So I was used to watching. By 1967, the Svelts solidified their lineup and renamed the band Wild Honey. They had a band house in Northern California, and they toured in a fixed-up school bus. The Millington's dad stripped the seats out of it for gear and for sleeping. It was blue on the outside, orange on the inside, a ticket to adventure. Well, we just wanted friends. We weren't in music for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We wanted to make a few friends, so nobody went home with anyone. Just hung out, cooled off, and went to the hotel and went to the next gig. I mean, that was our life, and you know what? We liked it. We liked it. It was totally fulfilling. It filled what we needed to do, you know? It was like drinking at a, at a trough with really cool water that gave us enough energy to go to L.A. because that's when it really hit the fan and life and the industry, you know, impinged. What's the matter with the guitar? By 1968... Wild Honey got more serious. They wanted a career, and they wanted to make it. That winter, the band drove the bus down to L.A. They were trying to get a deal. What they got were rejections. A meeting with Frank Zappa's management left them in angry tears. No all-girl bands for them, they said. What would they do if one of them got pregnant? They were dejected. But on their last night in L.A., they headed to the Troubadour. Mondays were open mic. Wild Honey got on the list, but then they learned they'd only get 15 minutes. They were pissed. And here comes the rock and roll fairy tale part. Wild Honey ripped through their set. The audience demanded an encore, and the Millingtons didn't know that a record producer's secretary was in the audience. The secretary went to work the next day and urged her boss to give Wild Honey a shot. Her boss was Richard Perry, a producer who had just scored a hit with Tiny Tim's Tiptoe Through the Tulips. And he was looking for another one. The The next day, just as Wild Honey was packing up to check out of the Tropicana Motel, they got a call. Perry wanted them to come to a studio and audition. Here's June Millington. Let's put this in the context of the times, okay? 
they may not have even spoken about it, but the, the context was definitely they're a good all-girl band, perfect novelty act, we'll make some money off of them, then, you know, whatever. And that was it. The band signed Reprise Records and got a manager. They renamed themselves Fanny. It sounded like the name of someone's sweet old grandmother. The entendres didn't really occur to them. They also solidified their lineup. Now, it was Alice DeBurr on drums, Jean and June, and a new member, Nikki Barclay on keys. They found Nikki after conducting a nationwide search. She was a touring member of Joe Cocker's band. Fanny, on Reprise Records. June, Jean, Nikki, and Alice on drums. Heavier than anybody's sister. And then they got keys to that house, Fanny Hill. On paper, they were living a scrappy, bohemian Hollywood Hills dream life. But they were butting up against everything you'd expect. A lot of their press was predictably gross. Even when they got positive reviews, it didn't feel like the novelty was wearing off. It's strange to see a girl act like that, but uh, I liked him. Back to Fanny, who've been conquering male chauvinist hearts everywhere. You know that there is now another all-girls group called Bertha? Mm-hmm. Is there a kind of competition between you or what? The guitar has always been connected as far as, you know, with the male, you know, especially in, in rock and roll, the, as, you know, the sexual image. image. Um, so I probably work hard. Thing. I'm sure I do, but, you know, I don't look like a muscle man. <laughs> but on stage, they were in control. That's where they could change minds. At least for a night. At this time, I'd like to ask you to welcome... Reprise recording artist Fanny. gentlemen five four fanny the curtain would open and out we'd walk into our freedom every single time nobody was there to tell us what to do we turned our amps up to whatever jean played whatever like she wanted to we had our harmonies alice's drumming was incendiary just out of this world jean and alice played so well together it was just crazy and i i truly believe that most people didn't even know what they were saying I listened to now to some of the stuff that Gene and Alice were doing, and I, I don't understand it. And I was there. We were the stars, and we were doing something to them. They were ready to have something done to them with our magic. It's very deep. It's very far out, and it's very powerful. It is like a bunch of witches doing their thing. Fanny wasn't skyrocketing to superstardom, but they were steadily growing. They opened for Jethro Tull, Slade, Humble Pie, and Chuck Berry. 
They were session musicians on a Barbra Streisand record. The title track of Charity Ball, Fanny's second album, hit number 40 on the Billboard charts, before Billboard even did rock-specific charts. There was a sense that the world was changing around them, just maybe not fast enough. Two feelings that I'm remembering right now as you're talking about it, I'm feeling it go through my body. One is that we'd be pissed off. I was like, why aren't you guys catching on to us faster? You know, you're just too slow for us. We're so way ahead of you, you know? And then the other one would be when we were discovering our own feelings, our own freedom, without anyone even noticing. So it happened right in front of people on stage. They didn't even know that we were uh, walking into our own freedom. You would think this would be the perfect era for a band like Fanny. It was the late 60s, the paradigms were shifting. And not only was Fanny a female rock band, the sisters were Filipina immigrants, June was queer. The whole band existed at all these different intersections at once. I have to be careful about how I answer these questions when it's talking about a different time entirely. So it's really in the abstract when I try to talk about it now. I had a real innocence because I never was talked to about it, about sex, sexuality, and uh, a position of women in, in society. So when I was young, I didn't know that there was anything like being gay or lesbian. I felt equally uh, attracted to, uh, you know, men and women, boys and girls, however one would contextualize it. But I, I felt outside of it all. The era of Fanny is also the era of second wave feminism, the era of the personal is political. Whether that trickled into the Millington sisters' consciousness or not, their whole story is indivisible from that idea. I mean, I went to college at UC Berkeley in 19, spring of 1968. I wasn't at Sproul Hall doing a lot of the screaming, but I was watching them doing a lot of the screaming and all those talks and getting politicized, but I did not want to walk into politics. It was too hard for me, so I loved that music could be my cover. Jean basically felt the same way. And the thing is, we didn't think about it as we were an Alger band, we were out to prove a point or anything. We just lived the music. Two years and two studio albums later, the label flew Fanny to London. They were set to record their third LP, Fanny Hill, at Apple Studios. Yeah, that Apple Studios. The label also got the Beatles engineer, Jeff Emmerich, to produce it. Being in that studio, the thought of it was so magical, but then we showed up, oh, it's work. One of the great joys for me in coming into Apple was seeing the looks on um, Jeff Emmerich's and his assistant's face when they got it, that we knew what we were doing and we were good. I cannot tell you, that was one of the priceless moments of my life. I just saw their eyes light up and their heads kind of explode and like these thought bombs coming out of their heads. Let's go, this is gonna be fun. You know, these women, wow, and we get to do it with women. It was thrilling for them. You won't learn when you're breaking in the eyes. Though you try to get by on the same. Come, you'll turn your 
just the atmosphere was so wonderful staying in the the Portobello Hotel was that we were in you know having tea in the room and all the stuff that they do and we were there in London but frankly we were working so hard it's not like we got out a lot I mean some shopping yeah well that that not just some shopping every Saturday or something we'd be taken out to the really hip places uh, uh, those outdoor markets yeah boy so we would we did some really good shopping obviously you're hanging out with David Bowie mm-hmm. you did heroin with Mick Jagger <laughs> <laughs> only once only once, only once. <laughs> London was a new kind of adventure for Fanny Jean had an affair with David Bowie June partied with Paul and Linda McCartney and their label was buying them new foxier stage clothes this is 1971 glam rock starting to hit But the influences that undid many of their peers, namely drugs, rolled off their backs. No, we wanted to play. That was it. Everyone was popping so much. I mean, the amount of drugs that were given to me, I just gave them away to my roadies, to our roadies. I I wasn't taking those. Well, not that we didn't do drugs, but (laughs) I would like get a a half a bindle of Coke. It would last me at least two weeks. (laughs) That kind of thing, you know? But their innocence started to unravel. The feedback coming at to us from the industry was not getting better. What's wrong with me? Nothing seems to make me go. Can I go on thinking? Mm-hmm, that was really tiring, and it was kind of mysterious. It was like, why are these guys like complaining all the time? We're selling so many records. We're People are coming to our gigs. They're freaking out, you know. Why, why, are, why are they so upset? Is it because they don't believe in us? Uh-oh. Uh, is it is wrong for us to believe in ourselves like this, to have this confidence? Because we came down with all the confidence in the world. When I say came down, we drove down from the Bay Area, Sacramento. My impression was, boy, we have to work so dang hard. Every turn we had to prove that we could play, every single turn. And all the interviewers that came to ask us about who we were, what we were doing, it was just crazy because most of the time, the first question was, how does it feel to be like a girl playing an instrument? And go, well, good heavens. Uh, well, how does it feel to be a man with uh, asking stupid questions? I mean, what... <laughs> And at the same time, we all had a sense of deep insecurity about, are we good enough? You know, (laughs) I just, Mm. I was about 45 before I realized that I was actually a good bass player. And that's so ridiculous because she's so over the top on most people better than (laughs) they were. There was no precedent for a band like Fanny. No mentors, very few peers by way of other women in rock. I didn't get too much time to think about other women musicians and what they were thinking of us. It just didn't... We didn't meet them, number one. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we were kind of kept apart because the nature of the industry was that, well, if there's one in sight, there's one bird over there flying, there can't be another bird in the same sky. Really, our focus, what filled our minds was, how can we just keep going another day and get better, you know, so that people can't help but love us. I mean, we learn how to play the way we did by teaching ourselves. And I'm including the 
working the mechanics of a band. Which, of course, is a delicate thing. So when snags started to appear, they really felt them. It fed off the imbalance and insecurities. Nikki Barclay was a vital part of the band's sound, but she started throwing the rest of the band off their game. Off-color comments during interviews, insults before taking the stage, maybe what we'd call microaggressions today. They all eroded the Millingtons' confidence. We were so exposed to each other and we worked so hard so we would work on songs every day Uh, if we weren't on the road we were rehearsing we were writing and so we were very exposed to each other I never thought of it that way but I a little bit imploded under it and there were other things in my life so young that I needed to work out June was going through her first major heartbreak with a woman who had moved into Fanny Hill she spiraled into a depression it wasn't like I made a decision I need to leave you know, I spoke to Jean about it. I just, she could see that. It was, it was just basically, so... you couldn't go on. It's not that you yeah. wanted to leave, but right. June just couldn't go on with the dynamic of what was happening. But now we're in our early 20s, and it's we work so hard, and it's not feeling good. What's up with that? Why, and why? We, couldn't, we had no tools to figure it out. We were just so innocent. We were like innocent babies, really. I feel, I feel kind of sorry. I want to take myself in my arms and just rock me and go, That don't worry, it's okay. You'll turn 70 someday and you'll feel good. <laughs> you know, it'll all be okay. You'll figure it out, you know. <laughs> Everybody's talking behind my back, to be my friend. Sometimes I'm crazy and sometimes not. June left Fanny in 1973, after they recorded their fourth album, Mother's Pride. She was replaced by Patty Quattro, Susie's sister, who had played in The Pleasure Seekers. By 1975, Fanny fully disbanded. Something else happened in 1975, too. This story is in June's autobiography. A man came backstage at the Whiskey A Go-Go, where Fanny was hanging out after just finishing their set. He looked at all of them in the green room, pointed, and said, I'm going to do what you're doing, but I'm going to make money off of it. It was producer Kim Fowley, and he went on to form The Runaways. Jean's 70 now, and recovering from a stroke she had last year. June 71. In their post-Fanny careers, they kept playing music in various capacities. Jean also became an herbalist, and June opened the Institute of Musical Arts, or IMA, in Massachusetts. It was the first organization that held rock camps for girls. Now in IMA, I find that the orb has expanded enough so that the entirety of IMA is the orb, our property. So Doing it together in that sense at IMA and and knowing, I mean, I say to the girls, we got your back. And when they hear that and they know it, they actually know it, something really changes. Got your back. 
in that rock and roll way. Yeah. We didn't have anybody who had our back. Yeah. We had each other. And that guess that's... Well, and our mom. Our mom, yeah. That's kept really us, important. Kept us yeah. going, kept us strong. Yeah. Boy, I shudder to think of all the things people were saying about us, around us, that we didn't hear. <laughs> and it's just as well, because we were in our orb. <laughs> and now I get to look in your eyes, and we get to have a conversation, and we are able to relate something that has to do with the passage of time and the growth of us as women. That's our job. That's our job. You know, so I take it seriously. I pass it on to you, and you're going to pass it on to all your listeners, and I'm very thankful for that. Badass. The orb. (laughs) (laughs) Be one with the orb. Why doesn't someone name a band the orb? This piece was written by Dylan Tupper Rupert and produced by Paulina Velasco. Special thanks to Lee Mataloni and Daniel Tinnan for their help recording interviews with the Millington sisters. And thank you to June and Jean Millington for sharing so much of their time and memories. Lost Notes is produced by Mike Dodge Weisskopf. Paulina Velasco is our associate producer. The executive producer of this season is me, Jessica Hopper. The creator and executive producer of Lost Notes is Nick White. The show is made with support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project. To learn more about Fanny, to see pictures and hear music, go to kcrw.com slash lost notes. Please rate and review Lost Notes on Apple Podcasts and tell the music fans in your life about us. Next week's story is about the life of legendary folk guitarist John Fahey, as told by the women who knew him best. I idolized him. I wouldn't say he was my type. But he was John Fahey, he was a great guitar player, brilliant musician, and he was trying to pick me up. So yeah, that made him kind of, kind of interesting, <laughs> you know. So Melissa calls and calls. Turns out the business card isn't really Fahey's. It's for the front desk of a motel, the Woodburn Inn, where he's living at the time. And then a week or two later, he calls back. He didn't really identify himself. He just kind of said, well, hi, I got your message. In that phone call, Fahey asks Melissa to move to Oregon to be with him. And he'd only met you really that one time. He had only met me that one time. He never asked me if I was single or not or if I was available. Melissa hangs up the phone. And suddenly, everything is different. I'm Jessica Hopper. Thanks for listening.